Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day celebration, well, really maybe an eight-day celebration, uh, that was prescribed by God in the Old Testament to commemorate two things. The least important thing was the end of harvest, uh, the uh, Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Tabernacles, whatever you will, was always at the end of the harvest season, and it was sort of a commemoration of all of God's provisions. But related to that is the more important thing that God instituted the feast day for, and it was to commemorate and to remember how God provided food for the people of Israel in the wilderness when Moses freed them, and they're wandering in the wilderness. God miraculously provided food for them. And so the way that this feast was celebrated in the first century, because at this point in time, something called the diaspora had already happened, where Jews from their homeland have, are now dispersed all over the world. And so those dispersed Jews would all come to Jerusalem. They would come to the Holy Land for this week-long feast, and they would actually set up tabernacles or tents, and they would live in them just like their fathers did while they were in the wilderness. And then there was a lot of other ceremonies and things of that nature. And it's about six months after the events we left off with, John chapter 6, Jesus preaches in Capernaum the uh, bread of life discourse. And roughly six months later, the feast day is now upon them. The feast of booths or the feast of tents is now upon them. And Jesus has people in his life who see his ministry woes and they think that this holiday is the perfect opportunity to relieve him. But for some reason, Jesus disagrees. Let's see why. John chapter 7, if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 7, we're beginning right at the beginning in verse 1, and we will read through verse 13 together. John structures John 7 very nicely for us. He talks about before the feast, in the middle of the feast, and the end of the feast. And so it'll take us three sermons to get through it. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. I would invite you to stand when you're there for the reading of God's word. Verses 1 through 13. Thus saith the Lord. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee... He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After this saying, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Looking at the aftermath of Jesus' ministry, at least up to this point, it's hard to conclude that things are going well for Jesus. It seems, from at least a certain perspective, that Jesus has left Israel in total chaos. 
everything is sort of in disarray now. After months of preaching and working miracles, John 7 does not indicate to us that Jesus has really made much progress. The covenant community of God is largely confused at what to do with him. At the feast, all these people are gathered and they're debating whether or not he's even a good man, right? Let's read the very end that we just read again, verses 12 through 13. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Right, so among the common folk, some kind of liked him, some didn't. There's confusion. What do we do with Jesus? How do we make sense? Who is this guy? And the people having these conversations aren't even having them in public because it gets worse. They have to have these conversations in secret because they're sort of in the minority. This whole, well, maybe he's a good guy, maybe he's a false teacher, that's as good as it gets for Jesus right now. Because most of the people, especially the people in power, the people who actually can do something about it, they're not confused. They know they hate him. And they hate him so much, they want him dead. And they're actively seeking to kill him. So at best, Jesus has left people in confusion. At worst, they want to kill him. That's how ministry is going for Jesus so far. And we saw this, by the way, just in case you needed proof, remember, look at verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So the text is very clear what their intentions are. Now, if you're like me and you love Jesus, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine, how could someone hate Jesus so much? Right? Like, I can understand disagreeing with the guy. I mean, I can't really understand it, but you know what I mean. I, that, that's to some degree, I can relate to that. I disagree with other people sometimes. I can understand disagreeing with him. I can even understand being kind of offended by him, right? Like there was that one time when he flipped the tables over in the temple, kind of caused a scene, and last week he told me I had to eat his flesh and blood in order to be saved. I can understand maybe not liking the guy, but wanting him dead? Like what has Jesus done to these people? where they literally want to see him suffer to death. As far as I can tell, the vast bulk of Jesus' ministry has not been eat my body and flipping tables over. Those have been exceedingly rare incidences in his ministry. The vast majority of Jesus' ministry has been calling people to God, feeding the hungry, and healing the sick. What is there about Jesus that would cause you to hate him so much that you want to kill him? Well, Jesus tells his brothers... What it is that's so offensive about him. Look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. These people hate Jesus for the same reason that everyone hates Jesus. Because he exposes their sin. This is why the gospel is so offensive. We talked about this last week. The gospel forces sinners to deal with their conscience. People have been fighting against their consciences their entire lives, and the gospel makes that very difficult to do. It reminds people that they are, in fact, sinners, and they either need to be forgiven or they need to be judged. And sinners hate it when you remind them of judgment. Sinners hate it when you remind them of their sin. And this is why they hated Jesus. And it's why we should never expect the world is going to like us. 
If they hated Jesus for this reason, and we are following Jesus, they're going to hate us for the same reason. As long as we are in the business of the Great Commission, which what is, it, what is the Great Commission? Calling people to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> The Great Commission is a call to repentance and forgiveness of sins. You, have, you are a sinner and you need to change. As long as that's our message, the world will hate us. The world will hate us. And that's why they hated Jesus. And they really hated Jesus. They didn't just dislike the guy. They want him dead. But verse 7, if I can get back on track here, reminds us that the situation is even worse. Because what does Jesus tell his brothers in verse 7? He tells his brothers that the world cannot hate them. And, 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 and why? What's the implication in verse 7? Because they're on the same team. Because the world doesn't hate its own. For Jesus is indicating in verse 7, the, the brothers can go up to Jerusalem and they're not going to cause a stir. That's, that's, that's no problem. Because that, that's their party up there. That's their tribe. The world. They belong to the world. Jesus is telling his brothers in verse 7 that they're unbelievers. And if, if, if you think I'm reading too much into that, the text John gives us a really helpful interpretation. John tells us explicitly, look at verse 5. Or let's, let's go back. Let's look at 2 through 5. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So this means that not only does Israel not really know what to think about Jesus, and the rest of Israel hates him and wants to kill him, but you would think if there's anybody in Jesus' life who truly believes in him. It would be his own family, right? The people who were raised with him, who saw him every day, saw him as a child, saw the way he treated his parents, the way he obeyed, the things he spoke to them. Imagine living with a perfect human being, the God-man from every day of your life. If there's anybody who ought to believe in Jesus at this point, it would be his own flesh and blood. And his brothers don't. Jesus has not only, not only, he hasn't won over Israel, he hasn't even won over his own family yet. That's how things are going for Jesus' ministry. Now, we need to clarify what we mean by unbelief. John has already given us throughout the gospel different kinds, different forms of unbelief. So certainly, we can tell by Jesus' brother's idea, they're not like those who hate Jesus. They don't hate him. They don't want him to, to, to die. They think they love him. They think they are believers in him because, right, like, look it, they want him to be famous. They're saying, listen, uh, Israel doesn't know what to do with you, uh, but the Feast of Booths is at hand. Jews from all over the world are going to be there. Why are you in this backcountry, rustic, rural Galilee that nobody cares about when you could go to the holy city and perform these miracles for the entire Jewish world, right? So they are obviously on Jesus' team. But we learned in John chapter 2 that it's possible to like Jesus but not have saving faith in Jesus. And that's what John is telling us about these brothers. So, yeah, they, they are fans of Jesus. They probably even confess him as the Messiah. But their view of the Messiah is like those in John chapter 2 who believed in Jesus but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. They have a very political, carnal, self-serving understanding of the Messiah. 
They see Jesus as a political ruler who has come to free them from Rome, and that's their selfish ambition. We're ready to be rid of Rome, so why are you in Galilee? (laughs) Go get some followers so we can get Rome off of our back. They like Jesus, but they're not believers. And, And this is important for us, by the way. This is your reminder of why the Christian faith historically has always been so stingy about the doctrine of Christology, the study of Christ. We're reminded in this text that we simply cannot afford to get Jesus wrong. You don't go to heaven for being a fan of Jesus. You have to fall in love with the right Jesus. You have to have a right understanding of who he is to be saved. This is why we have never made room for Christological heresies. We have to get Jesus right. The brothers are kind of on his team. They're fans of Jesus, but Jesus knows and John, the apostle, knows they're not believers. Jesus has failed to win over his brothers, his colleagues, and basically all of Israel. And his brothers recognize this. They recognize, if we're being honest here, Jesus, things aren't going very well. But we've got a plan. Right? And the brothers come up with a plan. It seems sensible to us. It seems reasonable to us. Go up to the feast. Go win some followers. Go put on a show. Right? They, they, they want Jesus to take the show on the road. Right? It's, it's time to go on tour, Jesus. And Jesus, as we know tells them no. And he tells them no specifically because it's not part of the plan. Let's read verses 6 through 10 together. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So Jesus tells his brothers, I hear your idea, but it's a no-go. I can't go with you. Now, he doesn't tell them that he can't go up at all. Some people think that he says that when he says, I'm not going to this feast. But he's very clearly not saying that. He's saying, I can't go up right now. He's saying there is a time that God has appointed for me. There is a time and a manner that I need to go up to the feast, which is consistent with God's appointed time, with his appointed plan. You are recommending to me a plan that's not God's plan. So no, I'm not going to listen to you. I've got God's plan. I'm going to go up when my time has been appointed to me. You can go up whenever you want. That's basically Jesus's response in a nutshell. The Father has a plan for when and how I enter Jerusalem, and I'm going to stick with that plan. I'm going to stick with my appointed time. To which I'm tempted to say, plan? What plan? Jesus seems to be operating under the principle that the will of God hasn't been thwarted yet. But I ask you this, does John chapter 7 really look like things are going according to a plan? What kind of a plan is this? It seems to me the plan got wrecked a long time ago, Jesus. Things are not going according to plan. It's time to get creative here. It's time to try something new. The plan isn't working. There's no way this is the plan. But apparently Jesus believes that even amidst all the unbelief, 
all the confusion, even in the midst of all of the hatred, things are still going according to plan. And this is great news for us. For apparently, the principle we can drive from this is that even when things seem totally chaotic and out of control, Jesus would have us trust in God's providence. Jesus would have us trust in God's providence. What do I mean by that? What is providence? I could give you the fancy definition. Our church's confession of faith defines it this way. It defines God's providence as God's ability to most wisely uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's a really good definition. Kind of hard to remember though. Uh, so maybe an easier one comes from one of my favorite, personally, one of my favorite theologians, a man named Peter Martyr Vermigli. And he defines it just a lot more simple. He just simply says this. God's providence is his appointed, unmovable, and perpetual administration of all things. Still some big words in there, but that's a lot more simple. Right? So thus, God's providence essentially is the control he has over every part of creation. And that control he has, he is using in order to bring all of creation to his decided end. Providence is the way that God moves history to conform to his purposes and to his plans. To make it as simply as I can, providence is how God is in control of the world. Providence is how God is in control of the world. And the gift that Jesus is giving us in this text is a reminder that God's providence, like Vermigli says, is unmovable and perpetual. It's perpetual, meaning it lasts forever. He is always in control. You can never look at your circumstances and assume that God has lost control of this situation. When they look like they're falling apart from our vantage point, we need to know that from God's vantage point, he's not anxious. It doesn't look like it's falling apart to him. Things are going according to plan. He cannot lose control of his creation. In fact, by God's own testimony, his providential control of human affairs is definitional to his deity. Meaning that if God someone were to ever lose control of history, they could not be God. God, by definition, must have total providence. That's God's own standard. And we get this from Isaiah 46, where God is challenging the false gods, or at least the prophets of the false gods. And he's saying, let's see who the true God is, me or them. And here's one of his criteria. How do you know who the true God is? Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Now, what is unique about God? What does God do that no one else can do? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Notice the first thing that makes God unique is that he can declare the end from the beginning. In other words, he can tell the future. He can tell you what's going to happen. 
But Isaiah tells us how God knows that. He's not a clairvoyant. He's not a crystal ball reader. He doesn't know the future because he looks into the future and sees it. He knows the future because he does it. How do I know the end from the beginning? Because it's my purpose that I'm accomplishing. I'm the one driving the ship. That's why I know where it's going to dock. He's not seeing it. He's planning it. He's doing it. And he's saying, if I wasn't, then I would be a false god like yours. But I am God. My purpose will stand. I will accomplish my purpose. That's God's providence. He has control and he has the ability to accomplish his goals. It is not just perpetual, but powerful. Now, because Jesus is the Son of God, meaning he comes from God and has the same nature as God, he has therefore the same mind as God, and so he is intimately aware of God's will for him. Right? Jesus knows perfectly how and when he is supposed to enter the city for the feast. To enter Judea, as the brothers suggest, might get him killed. And the reason that that's a problem it's because we know from Scripture that God has a very specific plan for the death of Jesus. And we can't allow that plan to be enacted prematurely. And if you don't believe me, turn in your, keep your marker here. But turn in your Bible over one book to the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. On the screen it says 38, but we're reading to 28. That's a typo. Acts 4, 23 through 28. To set the context of this passage, the apostles were arrested and they were threatened. You're not allowed to preach the gospel anymore. You're causing too many problems. If you don't stop preaching the gospel, things are going to go really bad for you and for your friends. And then they release them. So the apostles go to the church and they tell them this news. Life is about to get really hard for us. And so the early church does exactly what every single person in this room needs to do whenever things don't go your way. Step number one, always pray. So they pray. And look at this prayer. Well, let's begin in verse, yeah, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The early church has come together to ask the Lord to pray, or forgive me, to pray to the Lord, to ask God to stop their persecutors from persecuting them. And they begin this prayer exactly as they should, by first recognizing who is the God we're praying to right now. He's the sovereign God, the creator of everything, the one who's in control of everything. 
That's the God we're praying to. And it makes sense that you would want to pray to that God, right? Because if you're asking God to stop people from doing something to you, why would you pray to the God who can't do that? If God's revelation to us was, listen, I don't like to interfere with man's freedom of will. They're just going to kind of do their thing, buddy. I'll, I'll control the plants and I'll keep making the sunrise and I'll keep putting breath in your, in your lungs. But I mean, people are going to do what they're going to do. I don't know what you're asking me to do. Why would you pray to that God? Why would you pray for deliverance? Why would you pray for people's salvation if God just simply can't accomplish his purpose in the life of men? No, he's the sovereign Lord, the creator of all things. He's in control even of people. And so they're saying the God who's sovereign of all things, please stop them. That's their prayer. But in their recognition that God is able to accomplish his plans even through people, they point us to the chief example of this. The most important proof of God's total providential control over the affairs of men is the crucifixion itself. Think of how complicated from a worldly perspective the crucifixion is. They bring it up in the texts. Why? Who, who crucified Jesus? Was it Pilate? Well, yeah, he played a role. Was it Israel? Well, yeah, they played a role. Was it Herod? Yeah, he played a role. Was it the Gentiles, the Romans, the guards? The, yeah, they played a role. Oh, we've got all of these people in on this decision. And they've got, all got their own motivations. They've all got their own desires and their own. We've got Israel. We've got the chief priests. We've got Pilate. We've got Herod. We've got the Romans. We've got all of these different people and different motivations and different biases. And yet every single one of this complex mess is doing, what does verse 28 say? Exactly what God's hand and plan predestined to occur. All these different people are making their own free choices and yet they are all exactly a part of God's plan. God planned the, the crucifixion and that's why the early church knows he can stop anything that comes our way. If he wants to, he can stop it. They did what God predestined to occur. Now, perhaps what you're thinking then is, well, okay, so if all these people just did whatever God's hand accomplished, whatever his plan predestined, then they're off the hook, right? Right? God can't hold them accountable for just doing what he planned them to do. Right? So these aren't evil people. They're just robots. Now, without trying to explain the metaphysics of it, let me just assure you that the Apostle Peter believes the crucifixion was planned, but he doesn't believe that the sin of the men is off the hook. Turn back just two chapters to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, look at verses 22. We'll just go to verse 23. Peter preaching to the Israel after Pentecost. Look at what Peter says beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter also agrees with the rest of the early church that the crucifixion was a planned event. God planned it. He foresaw it. It had to happen exactly as it did. It was necessitated according to God's plan. Yet, what does Peter think of the hands that crucified Jesus? Off the hook, robots, lawless. They're wicked. They're sinners. They're evil. God is so wise in Peter's eyes. 
so powerful in Peter's eyes that he is somehow able to exercise his providence in such a way as to get exactly what he wants. Yet somehow he does this that it does not do violence to the will of man in the process so that they are still accountable for their sin. God is able to work in and through and with the evil intentions and actions of men to accomplish his purposes. And he works in such a way that men are still accountable for their actions even while God planned and accomplished those actions. That's the providence of God. And that is why we can read, whether it's a crucifixion narrative or it's John chapter 7, we can read these narratives that are filled with chaos and disappointments and brokenness and evil and still never conclude things are falling apart for Jesus. No, they're not. Things have gotten outside of God's hopes and desires and control. He's lost control of the situation. No, he hasn't. God is always accomplishing his plan. That's the good providence of God, even in a world of chaos. God had a plan for Jesus' crucifixion. He had a plan for when and how Jesus enters the city. And Jesus' brothers, because they're not saved, they don't even think to consult Christ about that. It doesn't even cross their mind. What would God have us do when things aren't going well? They just act on their own. They make up their own idea. And Jesus says, you can do what you want. I've got a plan to stick to. And this amazing providence from John chapter 7, it, it has some important ramifications for how we live our lives. It affects our Christian ministries as well, not just Jesus's. I want to give you just two of those. We'll, we'll end with this. Think of these as applications. Applications of God's good providence in a world of chaos. Here's how, you can, here's how your life can change, in other words, from John chapter 7. Number one, let me encourage you to do this. Be productive, not slothful. Be productive, not slothful. Here's why I want to bring this up. Because another common misconception of the doctrine that God is, providence is active in the world, is that, well, then we don't have to do anything. If God is predestined the ends, and he's just going to accomplish his purposes, and nothing can stop him, he's going to do whatever he wants, whether I cooperate or not. He's just going to accomplish his purposes, right? So, for example, I don't need to evangelize. God's going to save people no matter what. <laughs> no matter what I do. I don't need to evangelize. I don't need to wear a seatbelt. If God wants me to die, then I'm going to die whether I have a seatbelt on or not. And if God doesn't want me to die, then not wearing a seatbelt is not going to thwart the will of God. I don't need to wear a seatbelt. God is in control. I don't need to feed my kids. Isn't God in control? If God wants them to have a full belly, they're going to have a full belly no matter what I do. I don't need to take care of my children. God is in control. Now, some of my examples were a little silly, but that really is the thought process that a lot of people have. If God is totally in control, why should I do anything? It doesn't matter what I do. But I think that greatly misses how God is in control. And Jesus gives us an example of that. So turn back to John 7 and look at verse 10. But after this, the brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So let me put these together for you. Jesus knows that God has a predestined plan for when and how he's going to be crucified. We just saw that in Acts 4 and in Acts 2. It's set, it's planned, it's in stone. 
How does Jesus respond to that? Does Jesus say, fine, I'll go up with you guys. It doesn't matter how I go up. I can go up whenever I want, however I want, because God has a plan and it can't be thwarted. So sure, let's go up right now. Let's go. Jesus is showing us that God doesn't just have the ends predestined, but the means as well. So yes, Jesus knows that there's a predestined plan, but he also knows if I go up right now, I'm going to get killed. So I'm going to be active. I'm going to go up at a different time and in secret. He doesn't just say, listen, God's going to do whatever he wants to do, so it doesn't matter what I do. He knows God is working in and through me to accomplish his purposes. So it still matters whether I go up now or not. Is God in control of whether your children have a full belly? Yes, but he uses you. You're the tools he uses to feed them. Is God in control of whether you die in the car accident or not? Yes, but he uses the seatbelts. He uses these means. Is God in control of who's saved or not? Yes, of course, but he uses you. God's providence is not an excuse to go up to Jerusalem when and however you want. It's not an excuse not to obey him. It's not an excuse not to evangelize. It's not an excuse not to do responsible and wise things. He works through our wisdom, through our responsibility. He uses us as tools. So God's providence, rather than making you be slothful, it should be the exact opposite. Christ is in you. The Spirit is in you. And He wants to accomplish things in and through you. So do not be slothful. Be more productive than you've ever been. Work harder than you've ever worked. Be more faithful than you've ever been. Preach the gospel to more people than you've ever preached. Love your kids better than you've ever loved them. Let God's providence work through means, through in us and with us. We still must act and we're still responsible for our decisions. So let it motivate you, not discourage you. But here's the one I really wanted to get to. The second application of God's good providence in a world of chaos is to be hopeful and not anxious. This is why we have grounds to be hopeful and not anxious. Because there is nothing that should be more encouraging for every, every believer than knowing that especially when the world is falling apart, that God, the train of God's plan has not been derailed. God is still in control. And this should give us great comfort, especially in our afflictions. Because if God is providentially in control, then that means that all the afflictions and the calamities that come at you have a purpose. It's not, God does not look at your calamities and say, well, man, I don't want that to happen, but I couldn't stop it. Hopefully I find a way to fix this. So that you're going through something, it's just evil. There's no good in this at all. There's no purpose in this at all. It didn't come to you from God. It happened to you accidentally outside of God's plan and maybe he'll fix it. That's not the world I want to go to bed in at night. I want to go to bed at night like Job, who in horrible things happened to me, tells his wife, should I accept good from God and not bad? God gave this to me, and if I love him, and if I trust him, and if I think he's wise and good, then I can trust that he gave this to me for a good reason. You see the hope it gives us? This is why Paul was able to write what is, in the top ten at least, most popular Bible verses of all time. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, not just good things. The bad things in your life, God is using those. He brought them to you. He brought you in the valley because he has a purpose for it. 
This is why we can find hope in the dark. This is why we can sleep easy at night. We can look at the mess that the world has made of itself and we can look at it through the eyes of faith and know that while sinners are responsible for their sin, God has a plan and a purpose and he's going to bring this all about for the good of his people. Because of God's providence in chaotic days, we're able to actually sing words like, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul.